the beloved voice of Crosley Field and Riverfront Stadium for 34 seasons, the late, great Paul Summercamp, it is our pleasure to welcome the starting lineup for your 1976 Reds. First, let us recognize a National Hall of Fame player who is unable to join us for tonight's celebration, but remains with us in spirit throughout this weekend's festivities. He was the dynamic middle infielder for the Big Red Machine and the 1976 National League MVP. We salute number eight, the second baseman, Joe Morgan. Welcome the other half of the Big Red Machine's historic middle infield. Number 13, the shortstop, Dave Concepcion. Concepcion. A Red Hall of Famer and four-time Gold Glove Award winner. Number 20, the center field, Cesar Geronimo. Geronimo. Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, 
Dave Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? It's your boy, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up, ready to engage. And I want to thank everyone for checking out our weekly uh, baseball digital audio show. I like to call uh, Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Please remember to subscribe, follow, like, comment. If you're on Apple or Spotify, please rate and review me as you see fit. I'm scared. You can follow us on Twitter at Backwards underscore K underscore podcast. Or you can find us at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, YouTube, and Facebook pages. But, look, enough with the jibba-jabba. I'm ready to get after it. I've been waiting with bated breath for this one. Uh, as this week's topic is the big red machine of Cincinnati. And as I begin to look under the hood here, I want to be, uh, well, I would be remiss if I didn't give you a little insight into the architect uh, and the general manager of the club, a Mr. Bob Housel. And he was an intriguing person in my research. Before becoming a baseball man, he was a highly influential pro football executive. He founded and established the Denver Broncos and the AFL. And he was a key factor in the AFL-NFL merger. He was also a uh, driving force for MLB expansion as Major League Baseball went from 16 teams to 20 teams in 1961 and 62. From there, he would go on to be GM of the St. Louis Cardinals from 1964 to 1967. He would oversee the Redbirds win the 1964 World Series over the Yankees and again in 1967 over the Boston Red Sox. And he was a branch rookie disciple as the two had a very close relationship. And uh, most of you know that listen to this show, uh, how much I revere branch Ricky. I think to this day, he is the greatest general manager that ever lived in baseball. And you can go back to the Roberto Clemente shows and the Gas House Gang shows as evidence of that. And I think around July, somewhere in there, we're going to do a Branch Ricky show. And I can't wait. So, look, if you're going to be around a GM and learn, it might as well be at the feet of Mr. Ricky, as far as I'm concerned. From 1967 to 1977, it was Bob Halsam who would take all his lessons learned at the feet of Mr. Ricky and put his baseball theory to test. Now, when Hauser took over uh, the Reds, the MLB level had some bright young stars in Pete Rose, Tony Perez, Johnny, Johnny Brench. The farm system was, I wouldn't say it was a complete disaster. They, they had some good young players in the pipeline. But they also had like 38-year-olds playing in their double-A level. So it needed work. And Halsam's first year, it was actually the third year of the MLB Amateur Draft. And he would rip a page out of Branch Rickey's playbook as he made a concerted effort to revamp the minor league system for the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, you know, 
the minor league system, that little thing that Branch Ricky invented. You know what I'm saying? He also poached some uh, great baseball minds from St. Lil. Uh, dudes like Vern Rat, Chief Bender, and a young coach named uh, George Sparky Anderson. Howsam was now not only developing Rose, Perez, and Bench, but they also had guys like Lee May and Tommy Helms coming through the pipeline. And he would also boldly promote young hurlers like Gary Nolan, Don Gullett, Wayne Simpson. And Howsam made some very shrewd trades for players like, uh, well, then record-setting closer Wayne Granger, as well as uh, trades for young outfielders Bobby Tolan, Alex Johnson. In 1971, the year of the snake, Housel pulls off big, two big trades uh, when he deals for Joe Morgan of the Astros and George Foster of the Giants. And both of these players would go on to have NL MVP seasons that I'll be talking about in a little bit. Bob Housel always made sure that the farm was putting out fresh produce as it started churning out these young stars like uh, Dave Concepcion, Ken Griffey, Ray Knight, Dan Dreesen. And he had more power than most GMs of his day. Uh, the owner, Louis Nipper, pretty much gave House some full range. Uh, he was named team president in 1973. And for the most part, he handled most of the day-to-day -day operations for the Big Red Machine. And the Reds, much like the Steinbrenner Yankees had, uh, well, they had a strict facial policy, a hair policy, during the House of Regime. And that continued actually long after he was gone after the 1977 season. Not only was there a hair and facial policy, but players were expected to wear their uniform pants and socks in specific ways. And I'm going to be honest with you, as a kid, I always loved Pete Rose's stirrups. I, I mean, they were just always perfect. Now, yes, now I know why. When Bob Herzl of the Cincinnati Inquirer coined the nickname the Big Red Machine to the team on July 4th, 1969 in a newspaper article, little did he know that this little throwaway line would define the Reds' powerful offense through the 70s decade. The Reds would play in four World Series, winning two, and they would win six NL West crowns. And the 70 Reds are baseball royalty. Uh, a truly great team. All great winning offenses have these cool nicknames. And the Big Red Machine, it ranks right up there with the Yankees Murderers Row and the Gas House Gang of St. Louis Cardinals. In the 1970s, uh, the Reds had young superstars in the making in Rose, Perez, and Bench. And GM Bob Housem, he wanted to shake things up. So, he fired 36-year-old manager Dave Bristol. And he replaced him with the 36-year-old Sparky Anderson. Who had no MLB managerial experience up to this point. And the date of that was, let me see here, October 8th, 1969. The Big Red Machine wasted no time coming to life under Sparky 
as the Reds went 102 and 60 in 1970, going to the World Series before losing to the Baltimore Orioles in five games. In 1971, the Reds Reds suffered from a a World Series hangover. They finished fourth in the West. It was one of only four seasons in the 70s that the Reds would not win the NL West crown. Let's see. In 1973, they lose to the Mets in the NLCS. And in 74, they finished in second to the Los Angeles Dodgers by four games. But going into 1975, the Reds, who had come tantalizingly close, well, they were now hungry and determined to claim what was rightfully theirs. And the big red machine was merciless in 1975. They crushed every team in their path to a 108-54 and record. And they won the NLS by 20 games over the Dodgers. They would roll over the Pittsburgh Pirates in the NLCS, sweeping the Buccos in three games, propelling them to one of the most heart-pounding series of baseball games uh, with, with the championship on the line. And I'm talking about the 1975 World Series against the Boston Red Sox. I've said it before. We covered it a little bit in the Fenway Show. If you haven't heard the Fenway Show, you should go back. It's a lot of little nuggets of information in there. And we cover this World Series a little bit. The defining image for the Sox fans of that World Series is catcher Carlton Fisk, 12th inning, game-winning blast. Uh, that would force Game 7 rubber match. And a moment, like I said, we covered in that Fenway show. I even had the, I believe it was the radio audio of that call. But, while that's what the Red Sox fans remember, the most etched memory into the Reds fans' cerebellum is Joe Morgan's dying quail blue pit scoring Ken Griffey for the go-ahead run in the ninth, and then watching pitcher Will McEnany retire all three batters he faced. And the World Series title was the first chip for Cincinnati since 1940. And there would be no hangover in 1976 as the Reds came out smoking hot to defend their title. They would finish with 102 wins and 60 losses. And then they would uh, sweep their way through the postseason, first choking out Filthy in three games, and then uh, the resurrected New York Yankees in the World Series. Joe Morgan, the uh, catalyst spark plug for the uh, Big Red Machine, he set the tone of the 1976 World Series with a leadoff dong, and the machine never looked back. It would be a series of firsts as the Yankees Used the DH in the NL Stadium, the first time an NL team had done that. And it was also the first time since uh, 1921-22 when the New York Giants were the last NL team to go back-to-back. And <laughs> they're still the last NL team to do it. I mean, you know, the, the San Francisco Giants, they would win three in five years, uh, 2010-12-14, but never back-to-back. Only... The 96 Braves and the 2009 Phils even had a chance to repeat. And both of those teams, ironically, would fall to the core four Yankees. 
the season of 1975 and 76. That would be the high water mark for Cincinnati as the Great Eight would begin to be broken off as the Big Red Machine began to sell off her parts. After 1977, Tony Perez and 1975 World Series hero Will McEnany, they were traded to the Expos for Woody Fryman and Dale Murray. In 1978 offseason, one year later, Sparky would be fired and Pete Rose would sign with the Phillies as a free agent. And we talked about this on the Steinbrenner show. Uh, even though the Reds had swept the Yankees in 1976 in that World Series, it was very clear in the offseason that those two teams were going in opposite directions. And the reason was very simple. Free agency was a new game in baseball, and the Yankees were willing to play that game. The Reds, on the other hand, had decided that they were unable or unwilling to pay these free agency contracts to all these stars that they had on their team. And if you haven't heard that Steinbrenner show, I highly suggest you go back and listen to it here on Backwards K Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. The Reds would capture lightning in a bottle one last time in 1979 by getting to the NLCS, but the machine ran out of gas and the Pittsburgh Pirates would sweep them and route to breaking the Orioles' spirit for the second time in the 70s and winning the World Series. Johnny Bench would retire in 1983, and Joe Morgan would say goodbye a year later. And with all our parts aging, sold off, and retired to stud, the big red machine ceased to be. After 953 wins, two world championships, and four World Series appearances, six division crowns, the big red machine can confidently stand next to the Murderer's Rose and the cat Gas House Gangs as one of the greatest baseball teams ever. During their run in the 70s, the Dodgers and the Reds rivalry was one of the most fierce of the decade. The two teams would finish first or second every year in the 70s, with the exception of 71 when the Reds finished fourth and the Giants edged L.A. by one game. And the robbery kind of evaporated in 1994 with divisional realignment, moving the Reds to the NL Central. They did, however, face off in the 1995 NLDS with the Reds sweeping the Dodgers. And the Big Red Machine also had a heated rivalry with both of these uh, Pennsylvania teams. The Reds, 1970, 72, and 75 pennant-winning charges came at the expense of the Pirates. And the Pirates would get their revenge in 1979, NLCS. And the Phillies were postseason uh, victims in 1976. And the Phillies, however, would return fire in 1979 when they signed hometown hero Pete Rose, who would lead the Phillies to their first world championship in 1980. The Big Red Machine made more World Series appearances in the 1970s than any other team, which that's pretty damn impressive to me. I mean, when you think about the success that teams like Oakland, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, both of those New York teams, they were all very successful in the 70s. And the Big Red Machine was more successful than all of them. The Big Red Machine win-loss record, 953 wins, 
and 657 losses. All right, now, let's talk a little Sparky. I love that dude. George Lee, Sparky Anderson. Uh, his big league playing career lasted one season. He had a 218 batting average in 152 games. He once said that uh, the day I got a hit off Koufax, he knew it was over. <laughs> Sparky was born on February 22nd, 1934 in Bridgewater, South Dakota. After he and his family had moved to L.A. when he was eight, he uh, fell in love with baseball and began honing his skills in the Southern California amateur ranks. He signed as a free agent contract with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1953. And I found it interesting that uh, in double-A ball, he, he actually played on the same team as future big league managers Danny Ozark, Norm Sherry, Mari Wills, and Dick Williams. And that fascinates me. I, I almost wish I was a fly in that clubhouse. I bet you. I mean, that's, that's amazing that you have those guys on the same team, and they would go on to be big league managers. And after his mediocre playing career, Sparky found himself a managerial job at 30 years old for Toronto in the International League. He would serve as a manager to four teams in the minor leagues for both the Cards and the Reds over, four seasons, over a four-season span before moving on to coach third base for the San Diego Padres in their 1969 inaugural season. And as I told you before, he replaced Dave Bristol after the 1969 season. And it was a mixed review of the Sparky Anderson hire in the local press and amongst the fans. Much of the fan base and media had been frustrated with Bristol, and many felt that the Reds were underachievers. But Sparky was so young and unknown. And let's be honest, they, they, they may have been right, as Sparky was inheriting a team that was blessed with the nucleus of young future superstars, basically who are in the infancy stages of Hall of Fame careers. In Sparky's first season, 1970, the Reds went 102-60, and 60, leading the Reds to the World Series. Unfortunately, they ran into the Baltimore Orioles, who were still smarting for being upset a year before by the New York Mets. And that's a story we kind of covered in our Nolan Ryan Express episode here on Backwards K-Pod. If you haven't heard the Nolan Ryan show, you definitely want to check that out. It's there in the archives. Uh, third baseman Hall of Famer Brooks Robinson, he had one of the best World Series showings in 1970 on both sides of the ball. Slashing 429, 429, 810. He collected nine hits and 21 at-bats with two home runs, six RBIs, two doubles, and five runs. And as great as Brooksy was with the stick in that Midsummer Classic, he was even more jaw-dropping on defense. I mean, he was killing them. Diving plays to his left. I mean, Robin Lee May, basically every time that poor bastard took, 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 took an at-bat, And after watching the Orioles end his rookie managerial campaign and watching Brooks Robinson go on to win uh, the MVP honors of the World Series, they gave him a car. Sparky would go on to say, I, I hope that car they gave him 
has a extra large club box. Nah, what, 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 what? Freaking Sparky. Anderson led the Redlegs to another pennant in 1972 before losing to the A's in the World Series. NL West title in 73 before those back-to-back -back World Series titles in 75 and 76. Sparky liked to keep things simple, saying my idea of managing is giving the ball to Tom Seaver and sitting down and watching him work. Sparky Anderson, nine-year Reds career, 863 wins, 586 losses for 596 winning percentage. Two NL pennants, two World Series championships. And he would be inducted into the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee in 2000, along with Negro League's superstar outfielder, Turkey Stearns. And why wouldn't Sp Sparky want to hand the ball out to any of his pitchers? When he had, I mean, the almost mythological great eight sitting in his clubhouse. And with all apologies to solid ball players and hitters like Lee May, Bob Tola, Bernie Carbo, Ray Knight, Dan Dreesen, etc., etc. And look, all those guys, they're, they're all awesome. And they were major components for the Big Red Machine. But the great eight truly may be one of the best decade-long offenses ever, one through nine. Or one through eight. The grade eight has the all-time hits leader, three Hall of Fame players, six NL MVPs, four NL home run titles, three NL batting titles, 25 Gold Glove Awards, and 63 All-Star appearances. The grade eight starting lineup was born from a baseball hunch and a favor asked of a made man. On May 2nd, 1975, the Reds were struggling with a mediocre 12-12 and -12 record. And sensing that his big red machine needed a tune-up, Sparky began having concerns, especially with the, uh, the lack of offensive production coming from third baseman John Vukovic. And he also had a promising 26-year-old George Foster sitting on the bench whom Sparky felt could be an impact power bat. So he goes to Pete Rose and he asked him if he would please move to third base so he could put Foster in left. And back in 67, Dave Bristol had tried to force Pete to move to the infield and the hit king bristled at that idea. But in 1975, Sparky had earned the players' respect and Pete, who once said he would run through hell in a kerosene suit just to score the winning run, he accepted his manager's request. And the next morning, rose with that stadium before anyone else, taking grounders over there at third, and Foster could be seen shagging flies out and left. And I don't think Pete really cared where he went to as long as he got to play every day. And as long as it was the best thing for the team. The calculated move paid off as Foster provided much-needed thump in the heart of that machine. The Reds had traded for Foster back in 71. They uh, sent Frank Duffy and Vern Geishart to the San Francisco Giants to acquire that powerful youngster. Foster went off at 75, setting career highs at that time for him almost across the board. In 134 games and 511 plate appearances, Foster smashed 23 home runs 
with 78 RBIs and 71 runs scored, and a 300, 356, 518 slash, and a 139 OPS plus. In his 11-year Big Red Machine career, Foster will go on to play 1,253 games, 680 runs, 1,276 hits, 207 doubles, 37 triples, 244 home runs, 7th most in club history, 861 RBI, and a 286, 356, 514 slash, and a 140 OPS plus. One L. NL MVP award in 1977, and five All-Star appearances. All on a highly logical baseball hunch by Sparky Anderson. One of the greatest run producers in baseball history was the first baseman for the Big Red Machine, the Big Doggy, Tony Perez. Of the 1,652 RBIs Perez collected during his 23-year big league career, the slugging first baseman totaled 954 of those RBIs in the 70s, and that is second only to teammate Johnny Bench, who had 1,013. The Cuban Perez left a job in Havana Sugarcane Factory when he signed a minor league deal with the Reds in 1960. After platooning at first base in the early stages of his career, he would become a perennial all-star at third base from 1967 to 1971. From 1972 onward, he was a dominant run-producing first baseman, and in an 11-year span, Tony Perez drove in 90 or more runs between 1967 and 1977. And his high-water mark of 129 RBIs would come in the season of 1970. In the 1967 All-Star Game, Tony Perez was voted Game MVP when he dropped dong all over the uh, future Hall of Famer's Catfish Hunter's lips in the 15th inning of a tie game. With Tony Perez as a major power cog in the Big Red Machine, Number 24, he would not disappoint. He compiled nine seasons of at least 20 home runs. Uh, he also had three home runs he blasted in the 1975 World Series. He had a two-run shot in Game 7 of that classic World Series that would pro propel them to the 4-3 win. Uh, like his manager, Sparky Anderson, Tony would be elected to the Hall of Fame in the class of 2000 along with catcher Carlton Fisk. Tony Perez, 16-year Big Red Machine career, seven All-Stars, 1967 All-Star MVP, 7,630 plate appearances, 936 runs, 1,934 RBI, 339 doubles, 56 triples. Uh, 287 of his 379 home runs were hit for the Reds, he had a 127 OPS plus. My God, these OPS pluses, of the, they're off the charts. And listen to this slash. A 283, 346, 474 slash. 3,246 total bases. I love total bases. I think it's a great stat. 
Wow. What a player. What a player. Number eight, second baseman. Another beast here. Joe Leonard Morgan. He was born on September 19, 1943 in Bonham, Texas. When he was eight, his family moved to Oakland, where he would reside with, until his death in 2020. Small in stature at five foot seven, he was not considered a good enough ball player in high school to be offered a baseball scholarship by any four-year colleges. So instead, Morgan enrolled at Oklahoma City College, a two-year program instead. But his progressive game attracted the attention of the Houston Colt 45s. Uh, they were an expansion franchise in 1962. They weren't very good. And they were giving young talent a shot to make the Little Leagues. Little Joe would take advantage of that situation. Morgan was the Astros' everyday second baseman from 1960 to 1971. And it was during this time that the Hall of Fame team, uh, teammate Nellie Fox suggested Morgan flap his left elbow in the batter's box to prevent his elbow from getting too low on the follow-throw. And I wish I would have known that that's what, what he did because that was a problem I faced all the time during my worst slumps. Dropping the elbow, dropping the back shoulder. In November of 1971, Joe Morgan was traded to the Reds in a seven-player deal. He was dealt with uh, center fielder Cesar Geronimo and pitcher Jack Billingham in exchange for Lee May and Tommy Helms. Morgan had made two all-star teams with Houston, but as the catalyst spark plug of the Big Red Machine, Joe would make the Midsummer Classic for eight years in a row, their first seven as a starter. In Morgan's first six seasons with Cincinnati, he averaged <laughs> 301, 429, 495 slash, and an OPS plus of 159, which is tied with Willie Stargell for the most in baseball during that span. He won five straight gold gloves, and he averaged 60 stolen bases a season. His all-round game during the six seasons well, it comes out to a 53.6 wins above replacement, which is nearly 10 wins better than Rod Carrill, who had a 44.6 war. Um, and his was second best during that stretch. Morgan scored more runs, drew more walks, had a higher OBP than any other player. And only Lou Brock had more steals. But Joe had the better success rate. For four seasons, 1973-1976, Morgan had at least 58 extra base hits, 100 walks, and 50 stolen bases. He is the only player to do that ever. Oh, and he's done it four times. 50 extra base hits, 100 walks, 50 stolen bases. The diminutive second baseman led the Reds to uh, 1975 and 1976 World Series titles with back-to-back -back MVP seasons. In Game 7 of the 1975 World Series versus Boston, as I told you, it was him with his uh, little blue pit there in the ninth that would prove to be the series-clinching hit. Joe Morgan's eight-year Big Red Machine stats. 860, 816 runs, 1,115 hits, 220 doubles, 27 triples, 152 home runs, 
612 RBI, 406 stolen bases, <laughs> and a 288, 415, 470 slash with a 147 OPS plus. 1,885 total bases. Ha, my God. How did this lineup ever lose? Third baseman, number 14, Pete Rose, the hit king. A.K.A. Charlie Hustle, a moniker that was given to him derisively in spring training games uh, by Yankees legends Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford. But he loved that name. Uh, Pete was born on April 14, 1941 in Cincinnati, Ohio. Pete was the heartbeat and the soul of the Big Red Machine. The hometown kid is the Major League Baseball all-time hit king with 4,256 hits. Switch hitting icon would be joining his Hall of Fame teammates Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench, and Tony Perez in the Hall of Fame, if not for his personal gambling indiscretions. But he was as tense of a player in the majors that I've ever seen. And, you know, when watching him play, it was, it was like, you know, what you would hear about from Ty Cobb. He was that intense. His accomplished stick would lead the Reds to two World Series championships, 1963 NL Rookie of the Year, two-time Gold Glove Award in 1969 and 1970. Both of those were in the outfield, three-time NL batting champ. And I hesitate to go raw dog on Rose here. Uh, I think I'm just going to give him the tip as I have a Pete Rose show coming around the All-Star break. So... Let's stay tuned for that. I, I don't want to give too much away there. Uh, 1973 NLMVP, all-time record holder in games, played appearances, at-bats, hits, 12 All-Stars with the Reds. Like I mentioned, 1963 Rookie of the Year, 1,741 runs, 3,358 hits, 601 doubles, 115 triples, 1,036 RBIs, 152 dongs, 146 stolen bases, and a slash of 307, 379, 425. OPS plus of 124. How did this team ever lose? We, know, we now go to uh, the shortstop, number 13, Dave Concepcion. He was born June 17, 1948, in Akumare de la Costa, Venezuela. One of the most overshadowed shortstops in the history of baseball from 1970 to 1978. Dave, Davey displayed a level of defense few have ever seen. Uh, he appeared in nine All-Star games. He took home the 1982 Midsummer Classic ML MVP hardware, five-time Gold Glover, two-time Silver Slugger Award, and most importantly, a two-time World Series champion with the Big Red Machine. And the fan-favorite shortstop will always have support in Redneck's country, even if, uh, I don't know, Cooperstown never quite figures it out. He was inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame along with Sparky in 2007, and his number was retired by Cincinnati that same year. Final MLB stats for Dave Concepcion, 19 years all spent with the Reds from 1970 to 1988. Uh, he finished with a 40.1 war, 
2,326 hits, 389 doubles, 48 triples, 101 home runs, 950 RBI, and 321 stolen bases. A 266, 322, 357 slash, and an 88 OPS+. And just another amazing shortstop out of Venezuela. I'm going to start diving into baseball and other cultures next week. And I, I, I just, I can't wait. I can't wait to bring uh, Venezuela baseball tradition, all these different countries. We're going to start on that next week. I'll tell you about it in the end. Okay, so I gave you the Foster Rose story. Let's go out to center field. Uh, uh, Cesar Geronimo, number 20. Okay, so first things first. Uh, that red's number 20. It should have been retired for Frank Robinson. Let's be honest. And I don't mean no disrespect to the Reds or Geronimo, but I'm just saying it's probably just another reason that Frank always identified himself as an Oriole. I'm just saying. But again, I digress. Now, with Geronimo, his play was very overshadowed by all the all-star power on that team. But he had exceptional arm, glove, and range, outfield defensive skills. And honestly, his offensive contributions, they, they came with a lot of timely hits. Uh, if you sleep on his back, he will hurt you. After arriving in Cincinnati via the trade with the Astros that included Morgan that I told you about, the Dominican native would take over the much more expansive center field and the spacious new Riverfront Stadium and he would make center field there his bitch. Uh, after some groin pains and with Bobby Tolan doing most of the work in center, Geronimo began working hard with batting instructor Ted Klazuski and with Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda during the winter months in the Dominican. And the hard work paid off as Geronimo hit 281 in 150 games of the 1974 season and he earned what would be the first of four consecutive Gold Glove Awards. On July 7, 1974, he would become the 3,000 strikeout victim of Bob Gibson, a feat he oddly duplicated on July 4, 1980, almost six years to the day later, when he became Nolan Ryan's 3,000 victim as well. That is just crazy, the mathematical odds of that happening. Is unreal. In his second full season, 1975, Geronimo hit 257 and he led the NL in putouts with 408. He would score the game winning run in game three of the 1975 World Series versus Boston. That came off the bat of Joe Morgan. And for the series, the 75 World Series, he hit 280, 7 for 25, and he dropped two dogs. In 1976, Geronimo had his best individual season. He hit 307 with 11 triples, which was second in the league. And in the Yankees sweep uh, for the Big Red Machines back-to-back -back titles, Geronimo batted out 308 while playing every inning for the second October in a row. Caesar Geronimo, first uh, final big red machine numbers. Nine years in Cincinnati from 1972 to 1980. 
Uh, he scored 404 runs, 869 hits, 148 doubles, 43 triples, 44 home runs, 344 RBI, 72 stolen bases, and a 261, 330, 370 slash with a 95 OPS plus. Four-time Gold Glove winner. Okay, moving to right field. And look, before Griffey became the father of one of baseball's most beloved superstars to ever play. Uh, the elder senior here was a hell of a cog for the Big Red Machine. Number 30 first recorded, uh, first reached the big leagues in 1973, and although he only played in 25 games, he impressed Sparky by hitting 384, five doubles, three home runs, and 14 RBI. By 1975, he was the primary right fielder. And in the 75 postseason, Griffey hit 289 with four doubles, a triple, and eight RBIs en route to the world title. In 1976, Griffey had one of his best statistical campaigns of his career, hitting 336 with 28 doubles, six home runs, 74 RBIs, and a career high 34 stolen bases. He would wind up losing the battle title that year by a mere three points to Cubs' mad dog Bill Madlock. Ken Griffey Sr., final Big Red Machine stats. Nine years, from 1973 to 1981, three all-star appearances. 709 runs, 1,275 uh, 1, hits, 212 doubles, 63 triples, 71 home runs, 466 RBI, and 156 stolen bases. Had a batting slash of 303, 370, 434, and a 123 OPS plus. I mean, these guys are just all-round monsters. They got speed. They hit for power. They hit for average. And they play pretty good defense, too. And speaking of defense and doing all those things, like being a complete player, that's going to lead us to the impressive driving force behind the big red machine in the catcher, number five, Johnny Betts. Now, before I get after five here, I've been uh, calling the Big Red Machine uh, this team of arguables. Whether it's Pete Rose is arguably the best pure hitter ever, or Joe Morgan is arguably the greatest second baseman ever, or Sparky Anderson is arguably the greatest manager to ever uh, be in the major leagues. The Big Red Machine is arguably the most firepower ever seen in MLB history. So what I'm trying to say is, for me, all week I've been kind of like, this team is like a team of arguables, if I'm making any sense here. But as far as I can tell, Johnny Bench is the greatest all-around catcher who ever lived. Not arguably, rather undeniably. And if you ever heard my uh, baseball show, The uh, Baseball Bunch, I think that was episode two. I make my feelings known how I feel about Johnny. I mean, he, he is the GOAT. He's the greatest ever. His father had taught him how to uh, don the tools of ignorance, play the catcher position. He figured it might be the path of least resistance to the majors. However, in high school, I was shocked to learn that uh, Johnny not only played catcher, but he was an outstanding pitcher as well as a shortstop. And I thought that was kind of interesting, but... 
It kind of makes sense because that dude had the most perfect footwork I ever saw from a catcher. And because of elite high school play, Bench would be selected by Cincinnati in the amateur draft of 1965. Bench was the most important gear in the big red machine. He was Sparky's right-hand man, and he was the field general when it all came down to it. Uh, he knew his pitchers. He knew their strengths, their flaws. He also knew uh, the favorite pitchers, pitches of opposing batters. He had impeccable footwork. And the gun was unbelievable. It was like this overhand release behind, behind the ear. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful, mechanically correct throw. Over the top, behind the ear, lasers to second and third base, sometime the first to pick off a runner. And, you know, he was he was there nailing the speediest of NL runners for a decade and a half. And, uh, yeah, he could hit a little too. Uh, he was the first catcher to ever lead a league in home runs when he clobbered 45 in 1970. That was en route to the NL MVP honors that year. He would also lead the NL in dongs in 1972. And again, he would earn MVP honors. The 45 he hit in 1970 was the most ever for a catcher until uh, last year when Royals catcher Salvador Perez hit 48. And Johnny, always the ambassador, class act, he congratulated Salvi all over social media and in these uh, podcast interview rooms. Johnny Bench, the last man standing of all those great players. 17-year Major League Baseball career, all with the Reds. He had a 75.1 wins above replacement. 14-time All-Star. Two-time World Champion, World Series MVP, 1976. Two-time NL MVP, 1968 Rookie of the Year. 10-time Gold Glove winner. Three-time NL RBI leader in 70, 72, 74. He's leading the league in RBIs. Folks, he's a catcher. His number five was retired August 11th, 1984. And he's been inducted in both the Reds and the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. He played in 2,158 games as the, uh, with the Reds. 1,091 runs, 2,048 hits. 381 doubles, 24 triples, 1,376 RBIs, and a 267, 342, 476 slash, and a 126 OPS plus. <laughs> this team was sick, but I mean, Johnny Bench is just sick, man. And I absolutely concur with Sparky when he once said, I don't want to embarrass any other catcher by comparing them to Johnny Bench. And one of the enduring baseball myths, it proclaims that Sparky would just rubber stamp the lineup card with the grade eight lineup, and he would focus on which pitcher was going to get the hook next. But the reality is that from its inception on May 9th, 1975, to the end of the 76 season, the Great Eight only took the field as a unit in 63 regular season games. Sparky would regularly insert players into the lineup, both to keep stars rested and the bench fresh. Now, the postseason was a different story. 
as the Great Eight started each of the Red 17 playoff and World Series games and the back-to-back -back championship seasons of 1975 and 1976. But on those comparatively rare days, when Anderson did throw his eight-headed B statue, Cincinnati went 64-16 and 16 in those games for an 800 winning percentage. And to further crystallize my point, projected over a 162-game schedule, that's going to be a, a 130 and 32 record, folks. <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable how awesome that lineup was, folks. And there you have it. I think I'm going to end it right there. Uh, honestly, this could have been a two-hour pod, but I mean, look, nobody wants to hear from me for that long. I, I can barely tolerate myself for longer than 20-minute increments. But look, if you want to find out more about the Big Red Machine, there are plenty of books and videos on YouTube. The Cincinnati Inquirer was really helpful in my research. Check them out. Also, uh, the second show on Backwards Cape Pod, it has plenty of audio from Johnny Bench and Pete Rose. Go check it out. That's the Baseball Bunch. And that brings me to a real quick thing I've noticed about this show. Uh, let me turn that down just for a second. I've covered now almost 160 years of baseball on Backwards K-Pod now. From Moses Fleetwood Walker to Shohei Otani. That's 160 60 years of baseball. And I'm starting to see shows and moments. And they're starting to bleed into one another. And it's great. I can't wait to see how this whole thing evolves in the end. So, thank you for being here. Please remember to subscribe, follow, all that jazz. You can email the show at backwardskpod at gmail.com. I'm available on all major podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. Or you can check out my archives at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. Next week, we're going to take a trip to the Dominican Republic. I'm taking all of y'all with me. We're going to uh, eat some plantains and rice, do a couple of shots of rum. And we're going to learn about the hotbed country, uh, the hotbed baseball country that the DR is. I, I can't wait. But hey, that's another story for another pod. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch, looking bored, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day.